because of racism itself, making people feel ashamed of their own tales and stories, some of those things were almost lost. And so I wanted to get the chance to bring them back, right? I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Never fear change. Life is too short for fear. Chase what is desired. I can do this all day. Would you mind identifying what you are? We're the best friend squad. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Welcome to the rodeo. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. This is the way. I have spoken. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Conjuring up a ring shout with P. Jelly Clark. I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And obviously today we have a very special guest, P. Jelly Clark. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys. Great to be here. We're excited. So for those that don't know who you are, uh, you are a writer of speculative fiction, obviously, because you're on this show. Uh, You apparently were born in Queens, and you have written a number of short stories, novellas, other kinds of things that people may have read. But the one we're here to talk about today is what I would call probably one of the best books of 2020. And by one of the best, I mean like top three books, and everybody should buy 6,000 copies immediately. Please do. Which is a book called (laughs) Ring Shout, uh, out from Tor. And I really am stoked that we're getting to talk about this book. Oh, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. Um, hey, you, you got the nom from Queens. I love that. And I'm the biggest poser. I was born in Queens, but literally, I, I when I lived in New York, I lived in Staten Island in Brooklyn. So I know nothing about Queens. <laughs> I like saying, That's yeah, I was okay. born in Queens. I was. One of our favorite people, Paul Weimer, uh, hasn't lived in New York in years and still calls himself a New Yorker. So I think, you know, based on that standard, you could say you're from Queens if you want. I grew up as well in Texas. So you see, I'm, 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 I'm creating the mythology as it is. But I did go back to New York. And so I can be obnoxious to everyone else where there are trains and tell them they don't know how to properly ride a train. That's true, though. <laughs> Well, this is a direction we didn't think we were going to go. <laughs> Should we give everybody like the, the guidelines for proper train riding? Yeah, when you get in the train, you need to move further back. Don't hang around the doors. <laughs> Talking to you people in D.C. Hey, love living there for a while. Love the city, but come on. <laughs> really, I think at this point we should direct everybody to go read The Haunting of Tram Car 15. Yes. And get some some tram train subway lessons off of that although that one includes hauntings so yeah that's an added layer of a potential problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> but again that's not what we're here to talk about so we are here to talk about ring shout and let's start at the beginning which is why don't you tell us what ring shout is about and you know give us the elevator pitch so to speak maybe the one i told my agent well actually <laughs> not my agent but actually my editor uh, Diana Foe, when she was a tour, when I pitched this to her, sitting in a, a coffee shop in D.C. Imagine it's the 1920s. Birth of a Nation is a film. D.W. Griffith is a sorcerer. And the film itself is trying to unleash hell on earth. But we've got three heroines, one of them who has a magic sword, and she aims to stop it. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. And it seems to have stayed solidly that through the process. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, Diana liked it. She was like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna like that. Okay, great. Yeah. And you've done quite a few novellas with Tor. So, you know, I know this is like an ending question, but how many more are we going to get in that direction? Oh, (laughs) well, according to the contract, at least one. (laughs) There's at least uh, one more novella. The, The way this even happened was, uh, I actually published a novelette on tour.com when they would publish those great stories. And it was Diana Foe who just randomly told me, send her my story after I sent out, I think, something on Twitter saying, hey, I have this story. I don't know what to do with it. And that story ended up being a dead gin in Cairo. Oh. That pretty much started my relationship with tour, which still continues fruitfully. So Cool. That's awesome. Well, so I I guess we're going to have to start with a big question, which is the one that as soon as I saw what was going on with the birth of a nation in this, it just immediately like set my mind on fire because you take a really interesting direction as you as you you told us in your in your short description of the book, right, that the birth of a nation becomes the sort of vehicle for the sort of opening of a of almost like a hell mouth. It's more like a multiverse of horrors, as it were. Right. 
And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what inspired you to really feature this well-known, quite racist and impactful film in your particular story and, you know, kind of using it and the history of the KKK and its influence as the center, in a way, of, of the, the main plot of this narrative. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it was, it was just sitting there, right? It was sitting there in the history. And so The Birth of a Nation, like you pointed out, it's this racist but very impactful film. You can't run from it. It's, it's in the AFI, right? It is still used by film classes to teach about modern filmmaking. And so if you're doing any kind of filmic studies or cinematic studies, you're going to come across Birth of a Nation. You're going to watch it in some way or study it and understand its historical importance to our modern filmmaking and entertainment, right? Uh, at the same time, it is also this film that is pretty much one of the most pivotal catalysts for the creation of the second Ku Klux Klan, right? This was the Klan that spread throughout the United States, that had several million members, that affected political parties. And um, this movie is pivotal to it, right? It is Al Simmons in Georgia who sees the film and decides that he is going to uh, recreate the Klan, which for all intents and purposes had died out. Uh, and he's going to recreate it in 1915 on Stone Mountain, another place that's in the news that ends up, yes, uh, not too many spoilers, but it ends up in this uh, novella as well. And so a lot of the stuff was, I, I, like say, like it was sitting around, right? And it's almost like me thinking, why hasn't anybody picked it up before? Right? It's just there. And so some of these things that we pull into horror, that we pull into the fantastic, we pull it right out of the real world. And there's, there's quite a bit of that that was quite real, even if I add fantastic supernatural monsters. So speaking of, you know, bringing things out of history and, you know, sort of putting them on the page, obviously, Ring Shout itself is a reference that, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I can't imagine I'm the only white person that did not catch what it was referring to right away, even though I've watched quite a few Gullah Ring Shouts over the last year. Yeah, probably, yeah. So can you teach us sad little white people? what a ring shout is and why you use that as a central theme, particularly in combat, so to speak, against the Ku Klux Klan and the birth of the nation? Yeah, it, that's a good question. It has, has some, it has multiple origins in ways. And so I suppose one of the first things to talk about are that ring shouts are these, um, I want to say they're songs, but they're more than songs because it's very movement within the ring shout that's often important. And it is these very, at times, spiritual, at times, religiously based, but it also at times speaking about uh, their everyday lives and understandings that are popular among certain communities, often Gullah communities in the South and South Carolina, Georgia, and other regions. Sometimes people call them Geechee or Gullah. And um, these shouts are still performed today, often by troops, though there are still some persons who perform them, but they date back to the antebellum era. They date back to slavery. We know that during the period of slavery, uh, these songs were talked about and we know that they were picked up. And I, I think I wanted to use them for the most part because of the second sense, in a, the se in a sense, the second origin story of Ring Shout. And that is a very long time ago, I was reading the ex-slave narratives uh, taken in the late 1920s and into the 1930s by the federal government and by HBCUs like Fisk University, where they're basically recording the life stories of the remaining um, people who are alive who had lived during slavery in the United States. And they're all elderly at the time. So they are telling stories about the Civil War, right, in 1920s early 1930s, just to show you how this history isn't that far from us. And they, and in their stories, what do they talk about? They talk about that first clan. And it is in looking, it, it is reading their stories and their descriptions of the first clan that I first get the idea of the clan as monsters. Because it's these ex-slaves who claim that the clan uh, would try to dress as quote-unquote haints, that is spirits or ghosts. And they also say that the clan would dress sometimes with they would claim they would put on horns or try to act like they had tails or wear beastly masks. And so there's this notion of the Klan as monstrous. And I think that was a great influence when it came to creating Ring Shout. 
And along with them, along in these ex-slave narratives and from various bits of folklore that are picked up uh, during this time, uh, this is where we get a lot of the ring shouts that are recorded, right, that are written down. And so within that entire milieu of that archive of this Black Southern experience, I got these ideas of the Klan as monsters, these supernatural notions, as well as the history of this ring shout and its cultural importance, right? And I guess you could say all of that came together uh, to lay like a type of substratum for this story. And uh, the rest, I just tried to figure out what to do with it. And you see that in a couple of different ways, that reference in, in, for instance, the bottle trees and the capture of Haints through that method. And then obviously Sadie references, I think it's Sadie who references the outfits of the clan yeah. as may, <laughs> maybe that's what they really look like. You know, right. they're just trying to look like their quote unquote real selves. It's not so much a question, just a, that was really cool to see, <laughs> things like that. Well, so it's interesting because we started with a lot of these these history-oriented questions and talking about your sort of drawing on the existing history. And it made me realize that I think I had read somewhere that you are a PhD candidate in history and you study a lot of the, the period or at least a little earlier than when this book is, if, if I recall correctly. I have to update those things. Uh, everyone will be happy to know that I am an assistant professor now, full PhD. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that's even that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so and that, actually, I, I earned my Ph.D. in 2016. And that's why I said that thing really needs to be updated. But uh, just random factoid, the day that I walked to get my Ph.D. and get my hooding was the day that Adenjid in Cairo was published. And so I was trying to read comments on my phone as I'm walking up to uh, <laughs> do this. So interesting bit of history there. But yeah, so. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm a historian. And I, it's interesting that some of the work, like my reason for reading those ex-slave narratives comes from my academic work where I was working on a master's degree before I did my PhD. I, I did it the long way. And I was looking at basically the accounts of ex-slaves. In this case, I was looking for uh, women and accounts of um, resistance and violence within the ex-slave narratives. But I came across so much more information that what I would often do is jot down notes on where I found them. And I just kept this book of notes. Uh, and this is where some of these ideas came from I could go back to. Uh, and so, yeah, that was certainly uh, helpful, even, if, even though, yes, I study, for the most part, uh, the era of slavery and emancipation starting in the 17th century and into the 19th, early 19th century. Okay. Yeah, it made me think immediately. So clearly, right, drawing a lot of this stuff that you you had explored, or and I obviously still explore in your academic career. And I think this is just kind of drew me back to the first comment that you had made with this idea, like there's there's so much of this history that's there. And it was and as you were talking about these ex-slave narratives, it made me realize also this idea that a lot of history exists and has been recorded, but we don't talk about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, in academic circles, you know, to some degree, uh, we we do. But the idea that there were ex-slave narratives, like, I should know that as also an academic, that that's a thing that exists as something outside of, say, like, you know, occasionally you get a book published, that is one. But there is apparently like more of a record of this stuff. And it's shocking to me that that's not something that is part of the curriculum that we teach about, like, cause I remember in school, like, I think the slavery section in my, my school learning was like, it was a thing that happened and it was bad for a while and then it was over. And it's like, well, that's that one really. class day that they talked about it for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to me like, why wouldn't these things talking about the KKK, this idea that they, you know, that the, these slave narratives talk about them dressing in a way that makes them look like monsters. That seems like such a powerful, image of just how depraved this, I don't even know what you call it, the, these people were and how desperate they were to maintain that power that they would right. become monsters. And it drew me immediately back to your book because there's there are a bunch of sequences in, in the novel where like white people in the books just seem to kind of like get sucked into it. And I think even Butcher Clyde at some point is just basically like, it's really easy. Like we just feed them the hate that's already in them and they just like come and, and like are happy to be there. 
And so it just, I don't know, I'm making a lot of like odd connections. I realize there's not a question mark. <laughs> no, I think you're making a good point because this was something I wrestled with when I was creating the story. What, what I didn't want to do, and I, I hope it doesn't come across this way, I didn't want to, as much as I'm playing with fantasy and I'm playing with the supernatural, there was a danger, I thought, that I could come into the idea that where I would make racism and white supremacy so monstrous that it's not real, right? And, I, and you know, I, I often, I teach a class called Slavery in Film, and we often talk about Django, right? Uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django. And I point out in there to students that some of the, like, they have these overseers in there, and overseers are so brutal and so grotesque. I said, they come off more like orcs, right, <laughs> than as human beings. Right. And there's a way that when you turn, when you turn people into those monsters, then people kind of don't have to deal with, they don't have to deal with the hate anymore because, well, those are monsters, right? Those aren't, those aren't real people. They're monsters. And so I said, as much as I was dealing with that here, I needed to find a way where I also spoke about how it is a choice to go down this road, right? Uh, and that's why in the story, I have people who are fully monstrous and those who aren't, right? They can all get sucked and seduced down that road, but they have to, in some ways, give into it, right? They have to give up their own humanity to do this. And that becomes a choice. And that then becomes their agency in a sense. And in some ways, I drew from the history of Birth of a Nation, the film. Birth of a Nation, the film comes out and it electrifies audiences around the United States, right? It electrifies audiences and gives them this twisted, perverse idea of the Civil War, of Reconstruction, of the role of Black people in those things. And when it comes out, this should be a purely Southern phenomenon, but it's loved throughout the nation. You know, and the question is why? What did people bring to these films that they wanted to see? Right. And so one could say that the film itself is seductive, but it didn't work on everyone. It certainly didn't work on African-Americans. They didn't look at those films and say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? We were terrible <laughs> and loved the film. So what was it that made this film so prominent to people in the Midwest who barely saw any African-Americans or in isolated communities, what was it that seeing this film gave them their ideas of what black people were like? What were they already bringing with them, right, uh, that they would love this film so much? Yeah, the like preconceived notions that, ever, that people have of other people that they may never have even met. Right. Yeah. And this film kind of exploits that. So I always remember there's this scene, pardon me, there's this uh, story of a guy in Florida who he's watching Birth of a Nation on screen and supposedly the newspapers reportedly say he pulls out a gun and he starts shooting at the screen. And when they ask him, why are you shooting at the screen? He's trying to uh, stop one of these characters, which is a white man in blackface from hunting down and chasing, being a predator uh, against this young white girl. Right. And I think about the power of the medium of film, what that must have meant for someone in 1915. I always say that would be like us going onto the holodeck or something, perhaps. Right. Yeah. That it's just a completely different medium and how lifelike it seemed. And as you point out, all the preconceived notions and all the things he was bringing with him that would uh, and probably some alcohol that would get him to the point <laughs> that he would pull out a gun and begin shooting at this two dimensional object on on the screen. Right. That, that's that's a powerful seduction. But that's also something that you're bringing. That's something that you're bringing to the film. Right. Communication is always two ways. Good old uh, media theory. There is what it's trying yeah. to tell you, and there's what you're bringing. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because something you kind of said a little bit earlier was, you know, in your effort to try to explore these things, you didn't just want to reduce this to just just monsters. I mean, there are literal monsters in the book, the actual Ku Kluxes, who are like a kind of like really evil werewolf beasts is a kind of way to describe them. But then you have the other people who make decisions, and it it it's interesting that in, in going from there to this idea of like the birth of the nation and its impact, that there is to some degree almost like an element of responsibility on the part of the artist about what the what stories they're telling and how they tell them, because words we keep being told sometimes that words don't have impact and everybody's just fine, but even if we're just taking the the fifty percent that someone brings into a story the impact can still be, you know, good on some cases and horrifying in others. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, I, if anything, I, I try to, like when people say, well, words aren't important, then 
perhaps these visual representations aren't either, but they had a profound impact, right? Uh, again, the birth of a nation started up the entire Ku Klux Klan, which I think would rise to about, maybe get my numbers right, to about 4 million people, 4 million members of the Klan nationwide. The first Klan was just in the defeated states in the Confederacy, not even all of them. The second Klan was, was in Seattle. It was in New England. It was everywhere, right? It, it had nothing. It's like when you see a Confederate flag, you know, up north, you're like, well, what, what heritage exactly are you? Yeah. Are you holding on to New Hampshire? Right. So it was like if the first clan was a terrorist or insurgency organization in many ways uh, meant to terrorize uh, former slaves and anyone who were allies with them, uh, bitter over their loss of the Confederacy. Uh, the second clan, what are people in Seattle <laughs> bitter about with the loss of the Civil War? Right. And so, again, people are bringing all of these other things to the equation that makes them in many ways susceptible to joining these organizations and in taking a film like this is true. Yeah, absolutely. You two were just talking about how, you know, words don't have power, obviously they do. And that's part of what Birth of a Nation was doing was conjuring, you know, sort of other stories that white people wanted to tell themselves about their place in the world and whatnot. But as you were saying that, it reminded me of the first question that I wrote down today, which was the fact that I really do not attribute this to very many authors, but this novella was bringing up so many other stories and traditions for me as I was reading it. And it didn't strike me really strongly until you named one of your side characters, Sethi. So immediately I was like completely overtaken by the emotion of Toni Morrison's Beloved. Like completely. It just was like this wash of like the grief and trauma and love and all of those other things that are in that book. But I'm curious, like, how did you go about conjuring, essentially? Because I think that's really what you're doing with Ring Shout and doing with the Ring Shout within the story you're really conjuring both historical and modern stories of enslaved Africans. And and right. I'm curious which ones ended up being the most important to you. Obviously, you talked about the slave narratives themselves, which clearly you're referencing that throughout the book with the Emma Krauss character translating the Gula Ring shouts for us. But what other stories are you drawing from to create this world? There was there was so much, you know, one of the things that made me want to write this story was that, as I said, my my history is a little a little befuddled. I was born in Queens. Uh, I lived in Queens for a short while, then Brooklyn. And then I was sent to live with my grandparents uh, in my parents' homeland of the island of Trinidad and Tobago. My parents are from the West Indies. And I stayed there until I was about seven or so. And I came back to the U.S., and I lived in New York for a short while again, and then we moved to Texas. And Texas is where I spent most of my years. It's where I would uh, meet most of my friends. It's, you know, when I joined a predominantly black fraternity, it was, you know, it was uh, with all my friends from Texas and so forth. So that's where I went to college. And so there was a lot of the South in me, right? Uh, even though when I, I lived down there, I swore I was a New Yorker the whole time, and I made sure everybody knew that. <laughs> But it's funny how much I realized I loved the place. I think as I grew older, especially as I moved away, I ended up moving away from it, you know, in my 30s. I really think I I would man, like, man, I'd go back to Texas and I'd be, I can't believe I missed this place. I miss Houston, right, where I, where I spent a lot of time. And so in some ways, this story is part of a celebration of Southern cultures. It's not always the cultures that I knew, but it was the cultures of family, friends, who might have been from Texas uh, or might have been also from Louisiana or others I knew who actually, I knew some who came from Macon, Georgia. That was one of the things that gave me the, the use of Macon, Georgia and others who came from further. And so, you know, part of the story, part of the reason I wrote the story is I said, I want to set this fantasy story and I want to set it in a place that most people wouldn't think. And where else but, you know, the South, right? Most people don't think of that as a place where you can set a fantasy story. But I said, why not? I'm going to have a heroine. I'm going to have give her a sword and she'll fight monsters. Just like any fantasy story. <laughs> it's just going to be set in the South. And so with that being said, there's a lot of that in there. And music was especially influential. So 
cultural things that uh, that inspired me. I mean, being at a Juneteenth uh, barbecue, right? <laughs> <laughs> and right. in Houston, just memories of that. There are little bits of that in there, especially with the aunties and their food and everything else. Um, there's uh, Southern hip hop, right? There's UGK is in there. Underground King, then there's like, there, there's Beyonce's formation video, right? It was like, right. when I was first thinking about this story and trying to visualize it, I would just watch that video over and over again, her video for formation. And there were there are little scenes in the book, in fact, that are an ode to that. You know, ring shouts, of course. When I was first thinking up the story, I would play. There's a troupe called the McIntosh County Shouters, and they they basically uh, they're from Georgia. And they basically do many of these ring shouts and keep the tradition alive. And they've been had books written about them. And there were a few of their songs that I would just listen to. I'm talking like on a three hour ride. I listened to them over and over again as I'm thinking up this story. And so. I think all of those things kind of went in there and really helped flesh out the story. And you're right. I, I tried to bring in some of the old, but I also brought in some of the modern. In fact, unfortunately, because of copyright issue laws, uh, some of the best lyrics I would have liked to put in there because they're song lyrics. Uh, I could not. <laughs> Otherwise, people would have gotten a real dose of modern, including some Beyonce lyrics, which I unfortunately had to cut. Well, yeah, but you got you got to put in that yellow dress. Yes, I got to put in that yellow dress. You caught it. Yeah, you caught it. <laughs> Once you said it, I was like, "Oh, of course! How did I miss that?" Yeah, there there are a lot of little things in there, and I think some people will catch them and uh, others won't. But I, I I'm going to be delighted to see who catches what as they go through. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Although I was sitting here going, "Okay, well, we've got the hate you give." Potentially, we've got Beloved, obviously, Beyonce, definitely. You, in fact, you caught very well the name. I'll say this. The name of the uh, main female characters all come from characters from Black women authors. <gasps> oh. Of course they do. Yeah, and now I'm going to go hint. like run and research more and it's going to be so much fun. That's awesome. I, as I was telling Sean right before the podcast, I also got a little bit of Castlevania season two in there. So maybe I was just reaching on that one. Hey, I, I love when people bring to the story because sometimes you never know what your inspirations are. Right. So, <laughs> look, I, I was a Buffy fan. Like somebody pointed out, is there a Buffy influence in there? And I laughed. I said, I, if I told you all the Buffy influences in there, your jaw would drop. Yeah. <laughs> I saw some of the Buffy in there. I mean, it's just a little darker than Buffy. Yeah, all I want to say is, if you've ever seen the episode The Gentleman, very, very good episode. <laughs> so speaking of more history that you, you brought into this, because one of the things that I had never heard of was the Black Rattlers. A Harlem Hellbringers? Hellfighters. Hellfighters. So... Obviously, Chef is amazing. She gave me life, so thank you for that. And then, of course, I went and looked up the Black Rattlers, and I was like, oh my god, this is a, a little chunk of history that I had never heard about, because, I mean, so often, Black soldiers are completely erased from our narrative of wars that the U.S. has fought throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So, where did Chef come from? Where does Sadie come from? And where does Maurice herself come from? Like, these are three very unique women. It's hard to say. Like, I, like people have asked me this before, and I said, forming characters, like, I've had this in Dead Gin. People said, where did Fatma come from? And I said, I, I don't know where exactly. Like, sometimes a character just arises, and even if you have the story idea, the character just shows up and fits. And you know this is the character you're going to have. Like, I knew all along I was going to have a sword-wielding character, but I didn't know what her emotions would be, her drive fully, how she would be as a character. And it just started coming out as I started thinking about the story more and more and shaping her personality, her background, and everything else. Chef uh, came about because I wanted to do something with the World War I soldiers and Black soldiers. And partly this was because... I wasn't certain when I was going to set this story. So at one point, the story was going to be set in 1919 uh, in, the, in the Red Summer, right? The infamous Red Summer of mass anti-Black race riots 
throughout the country because these in, in most I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is all of these black soldiers are returning from World War One and the sight of them in uniform incenses many white Americans, wherever they are. In fact, one veteran is told to stop wearing his uniform. And when he refuses, he's he's lynched in Georgia. Right. And so the very sight of black men in uniforms claiming citizenship in many ways, this thing that was supposed to be reserved uh, for whiteness during this period and when, you know, white is also being defined against foreigners, right? It's, 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 right. it's good to remember that the second clan expands its hate list, right? On there are now Catholics because Catholics are thought to be mostly people from foreign lands, uh, definitely right. Jewish people, right? So there's a right. hatred of Jews and immigrants and others. And so, you know, the Red Summer happens during this point and there are these race riots throughout from Chicago to Omaha, throughout the country. And it is often these black veterans, because the police will not protect them. Fortunately, the police are often on the wrong side of this. Uh, and so these black veterans basically pick up arms and try to defend themselves. Right. And they say, look, we're going to have to defend our communities. And so when I first had the story, when I was thinking it was going to be in 1919, I was going to have Chef in that role. And though I pushed the story further, I definitely still wanted to bring in this historical uh, moment of the Harlan Hellfighters. So yeah. that's in a sense how Chef came about. And as far as, you know, making Chef a woman, <laughs> uh, a cross-dressing woman who manages to fool everyone and be a soldier uh, during World War One, And somebody was like, how feasible is that? I said, I have monsters that are clan members. I can do anything I want. Yeah, it's also it's also surprisingly feasible. So yeah, it's also it's very feasible, as we know it happens in other iterations, right? In other places, exactly. definitely. And I just realized as you were talking, of course, you have to put it in 1922 because that's after the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's after the Tulsa Race Massacre, and it's also 1922 when Birth of a Nation is having a rebirth. They're about to show it in theaters again as the anniversary. Yeah. Ah! So it it all came together. You're brilliant. Brilliant. And so Sadie, Sadie, the last one, um, Sadie came in there as the wild card. I needed a bit of a chaos agent. We knew Maurice <laughs> was dealing with her own issues, but she's, she's focused. We know that Chef uh, is her own character, but she has a soldier's focus as well when she gets sharpened. I needed somebody who would shock, who shocks the readers, who shocks her friends, <laughs> right? And she's, you just never know what's going to come out of Sadie's mouth or what she's going to do. And I've just always liked characters like that. Like I think of, um, uh, if you've seen the movie Girls Trip. I haven't watched it yet. Need to. Yes, I can't. I'm, so, I'm blanking. I'm sorry. On the uh, a character in there. I'm, I'm just, my mind is blanking. Who plays a perfect example of this, cha of this chaos character. And I just wanted someone like that. And Sadie fit the bill. She was fun. Sadie was, I think, the most fun uh, to write. She might have been, but I was definitely getting Vinny from Atlantis vibes off of Chef. So that was a joy for me because he is the best explosives guy in movie history. Oh, you always have to have an explosives guy. Definitely. <laughs> always. <laughs> always need an explosives guy. Oh, uh, they're just so much fun. This was the moment of when I was reading the book for the, you know, and I was sitting there, I was reading the first chapter. And I was like, oh, this is pretty fun. And then. I started getting all those little character moments, like all the dialogue between them. And by the time I got like to the second chapter, I was like, oh, this is going to be a book I'm going to have trouble putting down because <laughs> it was so fun to read their their conversations. Like, like That's so Sadie good to just... hear. I was so <laughs> unsure about that beginning that I knew I was writing and I was like, oh, this is too long. Nothing's happened. They're just talking. Who wants to see them just talk? <laughs> And now people have told me, like, no, I love that talking. And it was my wife who said, no, you got to keep that in. That talking is great. I said, OK. It was. It absolutely sets up who these three women are and gives you a really interesting glimpse into sort of like, this is how hunting and fighting a war actually works. There's a lot of sitting around. You know? Yeah, it's a lot of sitting. It also I thought was interesting the way that the first chapter for me, like, because I didn't really look into, like, what's in the book. And I didn't try to, like, read the blurb or anything. I was like, oh, this book just looks really cool. I want to read it. And then you sort of get this stuff in the beginning. Where it's like you keep saying Ku Kluxes. And I'm like, 
So just 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 clan members. <laughs> they're just they're just clan members, and you're like, okay, like they're gonna kill some clan members. It's like, oh, okay, or they're kidnapping them, or something's happening. And then once you realize in the first chapter, like what's actually happening, you're like, oh, whoa, this is like wilder than I thought it was. <laughs> it comes out of kind of as a shock to me, and I was like, oh man, this is so good. I'm so excited. It's the dog. <laughs> yep. That that was part of it for sure. I think it was interesting that. Given the later sort of context of things and reasons for Maurice being a main character is that, as Sean mentions at the beginning, you're just like, so she's just hunting clan members. And you're like, I'm cool with that. Let's just hunt clan members. Oh, wait, am I an awful person for thinking that she should just be killing clan members right now? (laughs) And then you get to Mama Jean's rule of don't kill the human one. And you're like, I don't know if I'm disappointed with that. (laughs) I was just surprised. I think that that was the fun part of that first chapter was you have all these expectations that can kind of load it up as you go through. And then some of them stay, right? Because you have some expectations to stay, but the ones that get kind of shifted and I, I just love that feeling of like being surprised and not realizing what was happening to me as I was reading. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's funny, I think that first chapter, one of the reasons I was worried about the banter was that I knew the story was going to be, first of all, I knew the story was going to be experimental. In fact, I didn't know if it would work. When I was done with it, I was like, ah, I'm done. What in the world did I just write? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> People are either going to like this or they're going to be like, that's a little kooky, <laughs> you know, and walk away from it. And I was really unsure until uh, Diana came back and said, no, no, this is good. This is very good. And let's move forward with it. But in the beginning, I really wanted to make certain that I wanted to give an outline of the three characters, which I thought that talking was most was very important. But I also wanted to give people a hook. I wanted by the end of that, you wanted to see the next chapter because I wanted to do some of the reveal. Not all of it, but I wanted to give some of the reveal. Um, Because I hate when I'm reading a story and people are setting me up and I get to the end of the first two chapters and like nothing's happened yet. It's like, come on, something has happened, right? (laughs) I've been reading for two, three chapters now. Come on. It's a novella. Can't keep holding on to it, right? Got to got to get rid of it. So, yeah, I, I was I think it's just one of those things from I've hopefully it's helped in picking up and simply writing and reading other authors and thinking about the art of storytelling. And that is trying to find that way to lay out some elements of your world, as well as give the reader something to sink their teeth into, something that's of interest, and surprise them if you can, uh, very early on. Very successful. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that you introduce in that beginning conversation is Maurice's, well, both her connection to her brother, but it's through the Uncle Remus stories. Yes. Which was really fascinating to read because I think most people in the United States, most white people for sure, will associate that with the Song of the South. Song of the South, yes. (laughs) And and the very, you know, ultimately racist interpretation of it that Disney made. But it was, you know, originally a collection of Black American folktales. So why include that, which has kind of a complicated history in the larger cultural context? You know, part of it was, again, going back to those ex-slave narratives, it's full of folklore, right? Right. There are so many stories of folklore. And again, when people are thinking of fantasy and magic, and it seems like we always have to go to some medieval world, like you have to go to Westeros, or people want like an African version of Westeros, and that's fine. But I was also thinking, but there's magic right here. There are monsters and folk tales and sorcery. And all the things you can want, it's right here, right? It's, it's sitting there. And so part of my going to those folktales was to show, look how they can also be used to tell these stories, to tell these complex stories. Look at what you can do with these tales as well, right? That they are as rich as anything you're going to read about Gilgamesh or Beowulf or what have you. We have rich and interesting stories and characters here too. And so I really wanted to uh, pull all of that in there. And also knowing, as you pointed out, it does have a complex history because often, even though these were black folk tales, they were often voiced through non through non black people, a type of racial ventriloquism. And when that took place, the stories at times were twisted or used in different ways. And this is even it even impacted how 
many African-Americans viewed the story, right? Um, some of these stories were hard to collect because some African-Americans, especially as they're trying to fight against racism, thought that they trafficked in stereotypes, even if they were stories told by from by their parents or what have you, right? It's like, well, those are those old country things. We're, we're different now. We're the quote-unquote new Negro. We don't need those, right? And so in some ways, um, because of because of racism itself, making people feel ashamed of their own tales and stories, some of those things were almost lost. And so I wanted to get the chance to bring them back, right, to show their importance and their richness and how, how they can be used. If there are black writers out there and they're looking to do fantasy or this kind of, of the fantastic, here are these rich resources. Uh, pull from them, please. Absolutely. Just a mini plug. I'm super excited about Eden Royce's root magic. Yes, yes, yes. Eden Royce's root magic. And there are a lot of this, and that's a good, this is a good segue to uh, point out the writer um, Kwame Mobilia, who's Tristan Strong characters, pull heavily yeah. from these notions. He's, he's pulling straight from this Southern folklore as well. And, you know, for middle grade novels. So there, there are, I, I'm not going to make, I don't want to Columbus this and say like, I did this thing that's brand new. I did not. <laughs> there are many black authors have been doing this many uh, African-American authors have been doing this and many current authors and coming up are doing this as well. So I'm excited to see uh, it get more press. Definitely. Absolutely. Very excited. Speaking of the songs of the South or rather the characters they're in is that you have, as we've mentioned before, a very interesting set of aunties. Yes. we got to have some aunties. Yeah. You do. <laughs> they're very important. And obviously, like, the, the image of uh, three feminine spirits is, is not exactly uncommon, but these three, straight out of formation. Formation meets uh, Madeline Langle, I suppose you could say. Right, exactly. It's exactly uh, what yeah. I was going to say. I was like, I got some serious Wrinkle in Time vibes. One of my favorite authors is a kid, uh, read all of those things, Swiftly Tilting Planet, the whole nine, so always been an inspiration. So in some ways, uh, those aunties were partly an ode. Uh, to that that childhood memory. Aww. That's really fantastic to hear. I did not read anywhere near as many of those, so that's awesome. But they're also maybe foxes? Maybe, yeah. I, I, I love the idea. <laughs> I've always loved the idea of otherworldly beings who, you know, you go to their world or what have you, and they basically look like people for you. But, you know, if you, if you look just right through the light, you twist or you catch them at the wrong moment, you're like, wait a minute, what, what are you <laughs> exactly? And so yeah. I've always loved that notion that, you know, there may be these beings that are beyond us, right? And they simply are like, we're just going to humor you and look like you, but we don't, we do things wrong. Like we might smile too much <laughs> or we right. say the wrong things or what have you. And we remind you or we, or if the shadow hits them right just right you can tell like no you're not people and i wanted some beings like that who you like but you're it's hard to put a it's hard to define them right and you're sometimes certain are they helpful or are they dangerous right or maybe a bit of both and i needed them to act like aunties by the way i needed them to act like like aunties uh who are helpful but also uh say all the wrong things yeah. And will nitpick and chastise you at the same time. I think, I don't care what culture you're in, I don't care where you're from, everybody knows those aunties. <laughs> so it's interesting that you talk about like these otherworldly beings, because I'd used this phrase earlier, like the multiverse of horrors. You know, and there's, I suppose it's not all horrors, but you, you introduce a lot of really interesting characters that exist in different planes of existence. The aunties are, are one version, and they're more benevolent or maybe more neutral depending on your perspective but then you have some that are far far less neutral uh characters like butcher clyde and the grand cyclops and then there are these like night doctor figures which we won't the night doctor they're so cool <laughs> they're so cool and terrifying oh i and i have to give it up again to the uh ex-slave narratives mm. first time i'd ever read about night doctors was in those narratives supposedly odd boogeyman type figures who stole away people to experiment on them oh wow which now we know is not not quite a story it's uh, just historic reality it's thought that it may be a folklore and a symbolism to talk about 
what happened to the bodies of enslaved people who were given to medical colleges and things of the sort, right? So this may be like a way of housing that with housing, you know, you, your loved one dies and where does their body go? Their body is dug up and given to some medical college to cut up and do what they want with, you know, and some enslaved people started thinking, do they wait till people are dead for this to happen? And you can see how it, the story perpetuates. And so when you read in the narratives, they talk about night doctors and I've read books on talking about African-Americans in medicine and some of the terrible things done and the night doctors recur as these characters over and over again, these figures who might snatch, snatch you away. And in fact, in the film Get Out, uh, in the very beginning, when we see the character, uh, I forget his name, uh, but he's, he's about to be kidnapped by someone. The first thing I thought, I was like, oh, it's night doctors. He's being kidnapped and he's going to be taken somewhere and experimented upon. And so that was something else I, I read about in those narratives. And even before I thought of Ring Shout, I wanted to do something with that story. I didn't know what. Yeah. And so I kind of filed it away for several years before I picked it up again. But uh, they really fit for this story, I thought. I, I am like shocked at, because I just did not know any of that. And now it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, it's really this, I have to read this book again. <laughs> because There's just like so much in here where I'm just like I'm having these moments where you're explaining something and going like, that I need to just like read everything I can about that because that's horrifying or fascinating in this case horrifying well i mean for me it it definitely drew up pictures of and i feel terrible because i i forget the woman's name that was experimented on by henrietta lax no the 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 woman who was experimented on for For gynecology the gynecology so the doctor was sims and i cannot remember her name uh and i feel really awful about that because she went through so much and it's awful, and it definitely brought up, you know, when you, you first started talking about the the night doctors, that's ex- exactly the image that was conjured for me. But that made me really question who Antoine Bisset is. And I was like, is Antoine Bisset made up? Is he a real person? I have to know. And I couldn't find him in Google. <laughs> so... <laughs> He has a name that you figure he has to have been someone, right? There had to have been a man named Antoine Bassett. That is such a perfect, that's like just a, a name that had to exist. It is! So here's the thing. Before I wrote, I'm giving away all the goodies here. Before I wrote Ring Shout, I said I wanted to do something with these night doctors. And so sometime in about 2016 to 2017, I did. I sat down and I wrote a story called Night Doctors. And in many ways, it's Antoine Bassett's origin story, how he meets the night doctors and everything else. And basically, when I was writing Ring Shout, I was like, what if I do what they do in comic books, where they cross over story? I was like, is that allowed? Can I do that? And I asked my editor, can I do that? She was like, yeah, it's your story. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) And so I brought this character from another story into this world. You know, and that that story still exists. And in fact, uh, I believe it's going to be published sometime after Ring Shout uh, comes out to give people some background on Antoine Bissette. So, yay, if people want to know more about him. <laughs> I am on, on that so quick. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> we clearly love multiverses. So that's just another version of multiverse, just in um, story form, which is, you know, maybe the best kind. And also literally a, a multiverse yeah. because the Night Doctors exist in a different exactly. reality, domain, dimension. Yeah. Yeah, which leads me to the other half of your question, Sean. What's the other half of that question? Oh, well, I, I this is just selfish on my part. But like, when are we getting a TV series of this? Because I just want this on my Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope if somebody hears you and says, yeah, let's see. I am shouting it out into the universe. Make please it happen. Give us the Netflix version of Ring Shout. Please. I need it. Look, this just comes down to this book's just really good, y'all. And you, you just have to read it. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. But if, you're, if you don't read this book, you have wasted all of 2020. <laughs> and it's been a heck of a year. <laughs> Look, 2020 is a dark year. It's a tough year. But the one thing that has not been dark is the reading, because there had just been some really great books to come out. And so thank you for giving me a read where I just got to the end of that. And I'm just like, I am going to be screaming about this book all year. 
uh, because I just I just adore this book. It's so good. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. It's great to hear. And I think that's a perfect time to ask you where you can find yourself and where you can find yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you can find yourself. That was about to get pretty meta. <laughs> that was. That was. That was. <laughs> I think what Jen means is where can folks find you and your work? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, have a website, pjellyclark.com. So it's basically my name with .com. And on there, you can find um, various works I've done, short stories, as well as uh, my novellas and any upcoming things I might do, like this podcast. Yay! Awesome. And uh, I know that you'd mentioned that there's still one more contract dead with Tor, but that's probably a bit down the line. Do you have anything that you you have an idea of when it might be coming, if you've got any other work coming? Actually, uh, people should be looking out. They're going to announce it pretty soon. I think probably by the time this is this podcast is out, uh, people will know that in the dead gen world, uh, I don't have a name for that world. People call it the dead gen world, so I'm like going with it. Uh, there is a novel coming out, a full length novel. Ooh! If people like Fatma and 1912 Cairo and Jin and magic and steampunk, you'll have an entire book to go romping in. Awesome. Well, I do. So that sounds very excellent. And really quickly, before we move on, I just want to say that the women's names that were experimented on by Sims were Lucy, Anarcha, and Betsy. So that was only three of them that we know the names of, and there were many more, sadly. So just wanted to make sure that people knew and honored them. Well, so thank you so much, Ellie, for being here with us for this interview. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. Definitely. It was great. Great talk. Yeah. I, oh, well, thank you. Aww. These were great questions. Woo. We try. <laughs> and uh, folks, if you want to find us, you can obviously go to skiffingfanty.com or you can get our newsletter at skiffingfanty.com slash newsletter. You can find us on all of the podcasty places like iTunes, etc. Um, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash skiffingfanty, a YouTube at youtube.com slash skiffingfanty, and we're on the Twitters at skiffingfanty. And Jen is at... At Lou Lou. And I'm at Sean Duke. So uh, thanks everybody for being here. And there won't be an awkward ending, except just that this ending is going on too long. It is. Awkward ending. And scene. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. You can also find us on our website, skiffyandfanty.com, and on Twitter at skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The music for this episode comes from Sphere by Creo. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.